Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist and bioethicist at Columbia University and a person in recovery. In this podcast, I'm exploring addiction and recovery through deep dive interviews with people working toward flourishing after addiction. Scientific researchers, artists and writers, clinicians, spiritual teachers, activists, people with lived experience, and generally people who are working on how to change and grow or helping others to do so. My goal is to distill their experience and wisdom into accessible, practical lessons that are focused on flourishing and positive change, without watering down this important topic. I believe addiction is one of the most fascinating topics in all of psychiatry, philosophy, and human life, one that has tremendous potential to help us all better understand how to flourish. If this sounds interesting to you, head over to my website, where I have other resources and materials about addiction and recovery. Sign up for my newsletter, and you'll get a free guide I made about the many paths to recovery. I'll also send you updates about books, research papers, and other things I'm studying and exploring. The email list is the only way to get several of these resources and newsletters, so please do sign up on my website to be in touch. You can find all of that at carlericfisher.com. So, a little housekeeping here first. Regular listeners might have noticed a lag in my newsletter and podcast. I got a bad flu. So public service announcement, please do get your flu shot. It's shaping up to be a bad season. I was really on my back for weeks, and I'm embarrassed to say I was a little late getting my own flu shot, so don't delay. But I do have an important announcement that the paperback version of my book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, is coming out on January 17th. It's been almost a year since my book came out, and it's been a real ride. It's been a thrill I've met some fantastic people, had my writing featured in dream outlets and more. And one of the most exciting recent developments is the New Yorker magazine selected the book as one of the best books of the year. And I wanted to thank you, the listeners, from the bottom of my heart. I know from writing in and seeing you on social media that so many of you have helped me immensely getting the word out, sharing among family and friends and professional networks, inviting me for talks, reviewing the book online on Amazon or Goodreads or otherwise. And for a first-time author like me, it's so essential. And I never would have gotten the media attention and other opportunities that I would have gotten without you and your help and support. So I wanted to say truly, I'm grateful So with this paperback version coming up on January 17th, please do get a copy. You could buy it for your friends or choose it for your book club now that we have this new edition. Request it at your library so that they buy a copy. Whatever. I, I would just love your help getting the word out for this new edition release. In terms of other housekeeping, I do have some other fantastic interviews in the pipeline Like I said, I got the flu, my production schedule got a little thrown off, but I'm excited for what lies ahead. I've been refining the podcast more toward what the title promises, flourishing. My plan is to have more guided meditations, exercises, skills-based practice. The thing that strikes me by connecting to all of you is that there's such a huge audience of people who are hungry for practical, science-based, grounded tools for flourishing. And of course, there's a lot of good stuff out there. I try to highlight it in my email newsletter when I can, but there's also a lot of nonsense, as you, I'm sure you know. And it's my aim to be a trusted source for material related to flourishing and the positive, thoughtful, helpful dimensions of wellness. You know, of course, I will still continue to discuss things like policy, philosophy, research, and theory. But as always, my aim is to connect those sometimes heady and academic topics with practical lessons that matter for our lives. 
And actually, today's guest is a fantastic example of this. It's my great pleasure to be speaking with a drug policy journalist, Zach Siegel. And I had him on to focus on his fascinating cover story in Harper's. He wrote a great magazine article about people with serious intractable addictions who had received deep brain stimulation surgery. Actually, a kind of surgery I did some research on in a research fellowship in Columbia myself. It's technically a kind of non-invasive surgery where a hole is drilled in the top of the skull, and then a very small, thin electrode is fed through that hole in the head. And indeed, that's the title of Zach's article, Hole in the Head. And then that electrode is aimed toward a particular brain area where brain stimulation can be turned on and off, hence the name deep brain stimulation surgery. It's been used for movement disorders like Parkinson's. It's been trialed in things like major depressive disorder, famously by Helen Mayberg. And now it's being developed for addiction. And it's such a fascinating topic, I think, because it's not just about a sort of high-tech, flashy technology, but it illustrates what we actually think about addiction and how muddy the waters can get when we think about what qualifies it as addiction, what is a serious and intractable case of addiction, and then how do the human factors like relationships, care, and hope still function, even in the seemingly most extremely reductionist frame. And so Zach is a perfect interlocutor to discuss this. As you may know, if you're familiar with his writings, Zach has a lived experience with addiction. He's not just one of our most respected and prolific journalists on addiction and drug policy. He frequently weaves in his own history. And in a very, I think, warm-hearted and insightful way, and because it's often woven in here and there with different pieces, he's never really had the opportunity to tell his addiction story start to finish. So whether you know him or not, but especially if you like Zach, I think it'll be a great experience to give him the opportunity to start from the beginning and really understand his own addiction story. And there's a lot that comes out of that too, in a broader sense. Questions like, how do you understand recovery? What does it mean to say you're in recovery? Does Zach even identify with that label? Listen on for the answer. And then a huge theme in his personal story is medication management, uh, medications for addiction treatment, the role of Suboxone, institutional and other stigma against Suboxone. How do you use Suboxone? Is it really clean? Is it really sober if you're using Suboxone? What's a good dose? What's too high? What do you do if the people around you, even in treatment centers, are telling you to taper off meds? A lot of really rich and complicated topics in this episode. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Zach Siegel. All right. I'm here with Zach Siegel, writer and journalist. Zach, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you. Glad we worked it out. So I wanted to start with the personal here. I've been following your work for a while as any thinking person who cares about drugs and addiction does. And I've seen you've written several times across different outlets about your own history with addiction and recovery. But I I thought it would be interesting to kind of piece it together and hear it directly from you. Just start off at the beginning and tell us, you know, a little bit about how you got into recovery, what your experience with addiction was like. Yeah, thanks. Because it's it's hard to put it all in one place sometimes. Because as you said, it's there's bits and pieces kind of scattered, and in my own mind, it's I'm always trying to like make it seem coherent and 
sometimes with addiction and recovery, it's like there's there's things that are hard to square, I think, a lot of the time. But with my own story, I with recovery specifically, you know, I was in my early 20s, the first time I had a I would say parental intervention into my substance use. That's really what I would call it, where, you know, I'm 20, like 21, 22, and very much dependent on my parents at this point in my life, especially I'm on their insurance. (laughs) This was the post Obamacare world and also post the kind of mental health addiction parody kind of provisions of that where now treatment for addiction is a real illness and people can receive treatment for it and it's covered under insurance. And so that kind of climate, I think, is really important to my story. But really, it was my mother being an OR nurse for much of her life and having kind of known what opioid addiction is and was and i think her experience of knowing maybe doctors who dabbled with fentanyl and things like that like that's not unheard of anesthesiologists you know they might get curious about the product that they're using all day at work whatever so you know and i talk about my mom being a nurse because when it sort of came to the fore that I had a addiction problem. It was really at a point where I had recently started to use heroin IV. And that really didn't last too long for me. Around 2007, all the various versions of oxycodone that are out there and in abundant supply, those kind of start to dry up. And that's when the shift to heroin kind of presents itself Mm. through friends and because it's like we all know each other we all know each other are using and it's like hey so and so has no more oxycodone hookup what are you doing like how are you surviving this and it's like i'm living in the suburbs of chicago not far from where there's just open air heroin markets in the city And that's when people are like, we just go to the city now and we get heroin now. And it was not like a decision that I really wrestled with and deliberated and pained over. It was like, yes, please. Now, like, I, you know, let's go. Because at that point, it was like the dependence, you know, so strong. And, if several hours go went by, I would start to feel sick. And so the switch to heroin, like I said, didn't really last very long. It quickly turned much more chaotic to IV heroin than to have been kind of snorting 20, 30, 40 milligram pills. And so this is like a summer... I'm not in school and I was a mess. Like it was just so plainly obvious to my parents, especially that I wasn't well. I am constantly 
spending all my money and cannot account for it. And so it's it's like I just kind of blurt out to my mom and when she's like, what is happening here? What is going on? That I have an opioid addiction. It's painkillers and it's heroin. And so that that moment kicked off the first round of treatment and really what that looked like was a uh, I went to a behavioral health hospital outside of Chicago for detox and you know my mom like instantly set that up <laughs> like she just knew kind of who to call and where to go and it's like that's why like I think about her being a nurse and kind of being really lucky that she like knew the field of medicine <laughs> because we can get into this, but like a lot of people I know their first door into treatment and recovery, they walk through could be like a, you know, a strip mall parking lot in Florida or something like, like mm-hmm. some, some like really low quality, maybe explicitly anti-medical models of, of addiction. And so it's at this behavioral health hospital where I'm just first introduced to the whole kind of world of of addiction and recovery. Yeah, that sounds like real I mean, so many people get into treatment by googling or by weird rumors. I want to talk about treatment, but first you're snorting pills and then you transition to IV heroin. Were you what happened there with the IV? Sometimes the the IV transition is really a momentous one in someone's history. It really wasn't for me. Like I had, it felt like I had, I had like procrastinated on it and like prolonged it and, and knew that once you go down this road, there's kind of no going back. Like in my head, that's kind of how it had been set up. But then it's almost like, you know, I'm not like a Ayn Randian objectivist but it's almost like brute economics really kind of kick in mm. in in some way like homo economicus is suddenly making the decisions for me but really like it's you know it's it's kind of a function of addiction and what it how it can distort our thinking how it can uh, really narrow the horizon of choice and decision and and all that and i think the move to IV heroin, it was friends, people I knew had already made that jump Mm. and being with them and understanding it, it's like, okay, they're using a lot less than I am in a dose. And you start doing the math and kind of understanding and it's like, okay, right. This is the economical way to use heroin. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Plus, it also looked like they were enjoying it much more than than me because I think at a certain point too, with 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 snorting heroin and having a really massive tolerance, there was many letdowns, many like many ways in which I'm like, you know, I wish this was just the eighty milligram oxycodone because like it was the same thing every time, and now there's all this variation I have to deal with, like you know the 
bag with the Nike logo is better than the bag with the Batman logo. And it's like, what kind of, it's just like an insane market to try to navigate. And so like, again, the brute force of the place I had gotten myself into where if I need to use 50, 60, $70 worth of heroin a day to be okay, to be functioning suddenly like, the whole decision-making process is is overran and infused with that with that logic and that logic is how do i survive so that's really the like in my head it, it was you know this is this is the next step like this is how i have this is how this will keep how i can keep this going basically yeah that yeah, makes sense and so one more question before we get to the treatment part Aside from just keeping you out of withdrawal, what was the heroin or before that, what was the oxycodone doing for you? You wrote in your more recent piece in Harper's about your first doses of opioids quieting an inner critic and helping you to feel normal. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Being a teenager, it's the early 2000s, mid 2000s, and there was just this sense that I was uncomfortable a lot of the time, like uncomfortable in my own body and mind a lot of the time. And so, and it just so happened that one of my, or a lot of my close friends, they had prescriptions for Adderall or their parents had prescriptions for Xanax or other people had there's just like a lot of pharmaceuticals <laughs> flowing around in this place I was living in at that time. And so I had experimented with something like Adderall and realized instantly, like, this is not what I like and not what I need. I, you know, for my friends with ADHD, like they could take it and seemingly feel unaffected. Whereas I take it, I am yeah like just completely crawling in my skin like the effect of a stimulant was not was not good because i think i was already so stimulated like like there was some like adding a stimulant on top of like a neurotic jewish kid with anxiety like suddenly i'm like you know and and i and i just didn't really didn't like the feeling especially just the experience of like not wanting to eat, not wanting to sleep. I'm like, I, I like both of those things. <laughs> so stimulants were a big no. And, and so Xanax, similarly, it's like in the opposite direction, I didn't really get any like high per se from it. It was just like, oh, I, I, I feel a bit more comfortable. Like the anti-anxiety was clearly like, just, yeah, kind of melted a lot of that you know, in the piece, I call it an inner critic. And in my head, it's like, it's like, there's just this like prosecutor, just this judge, jury, executioner that is ready to indict, condemn and punish me for any misfire, any perceived misstep, any error could just be the end of me. And it's like, that is a totally paralyzing way to, to kind of live and interact with myself that's just incredibly harsh judgment and like uniquely harsh toward myself 
we can get into more of that but like what the all the drugs were kind of interacting with that i think it was like what is kind of toning down this noise and it really wasn't until i tried an opioid that was like aha okay like this is the this is the thing that works and by that i mean it was like I didn't feel really drowsy and and sedated. Like I felt actually a, a bit stimulated mildly, but like a, a kind of vitality, a kind of energy, a feeling of being invigorated from the opioid. And it's just this sense that like this made life just much easier to live in all ways, like going to school, being around friends, being around family, just doing everyday things, chit chat, all that became easier. Yeah. I identify with a lot of that. You know, I, for me, it was alcohol, it, but I also really identify with that first feeling of feeling normal. And it's a common trope, as you know, in addiction stories. And I, it can't just be socially constructed, I feel. There, I think there's something about that random, evolutionary almost darwinian fit where people land on a substance that gives them enough of a feeling of safety and normalcy that it 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 just really powerfully imprints itself on us and i'm sure that that sense of the internal critic or the the voice in your head is important i was going to say for your ongoing recovery but i i wanted to clarify before i got into that i was going to ask you how you got into treatment and recovery, but do you consider yourself in recovery? Like, is that a label you, you identify with recovery? Lately, I would say no. And like, I've had a lot of, I would say, so I'm 33 now and all this was going on when I'm 21, 22. So there's like a 10 year period of, of a lot of thinking and a lot of interrogating and questioning and learning and unlearning and relearning going on in this 10 year span and the label recovery like at least socially it's certainly not coming up and isn't a big part of my social world and the people i'm close to they all know my history and you know they they, they know everything and and so as far as like being in recovery goes like i think there's certainly like a time and place where Maybe it does make sense to disclose, like, you know, I've had this problem and, but like right, right now, I would say no. And the reason why is the, like, I don't go to 12 step meetings and my recovery is really handled through me and a therapist. And I see like a primary care doctor who knows my whole story. And so like, that's like kind of like the medical therapeutic side of my ongoing relationship with substances and, and, and really it's just being in therapy. It's more of like a very long-term psychodynamic style of therapy where this is not like an addiction specialist or a certified drug counselor. This is a, a guy with a, I think he has a PhD in clinical psychology anyway but where i was going with all this is yeah that the places where i would identify as being in recovery 
you know, outside of maybe in, in writing, like socially, it's just like that context isn't really there for me, for one thing. And then secondly, like I will absolutely abstain from like injecting heroin. Like I will drink alcohol on occasion. And so like, I don't, that to me and also like i don't really like cannabis but like i will take a very low dose of an edible for like a, a horror movie on halloween let's say like like there's places and times where indulging in substances is something that i do and so the fact that i think a lot of kind of the announcement of i'm in recovery is associated with not doing that thing and so if i'm saying i'm in recovery and then also like i'm also having a gin and tonic and i'm also going to take some edibles and who knows what else where this night takes like it i think it presents an awkward <laughs> scenario socially with like hey zach i thought like you're in recovery right so i think there's a lot of my life nowadays where yeah like i think most people if they google me will know that i had a heroin addiction <laughs> if they so choose it does feel that the pronouncement and the identification with being in recovery does feel like a, a kind of a kind of two-way street like you have to say it to someone or it could just be to yourself or to a group and you're in a meeting like i'm trying to like think through just the the social relationships that kind of really attach to that word and and so be, because i'm not hardline abstinent it's almost like i think that doesn't really apply to me or i i, I don't know mm -hmm. yeah that was what i was wondering is your the way you talk about yourself to yourself too because you're talking mostly about social relationships and it makes me think of um katie witkowitz in the first interview i ever did for this podcast she talked a lot about partial recovery and she herself as i understand her is a big advocate of supporting and validating people who are in this is an imperfect term but partial recovery if someone is fully abstinent from one substance but still using a different substance to say that that's equally valid as long as it works for that person as long as it's safe and they, they themselves feel like it's useful so i could imagine a person who says i'm in partial recovery or even like this is my kind of recovery i'm reclaiming the recovery term you know i'm gonna you know matters to me maybe as an activist right to be public as someone who doesn't fit the orthodox view and that's fine i mean like you're saying it it doesn't help you socially it's just like a little weird and awkward to say you're in recovery and then drink but then just to yourself like do you do you care is there is there a reason you don't make that identification to yourself or it's a good question like i think where i am now the like i have a lot of i think pride personally that i've had this quite debilitating addiction and that i'm it's almost like it's something like i've went through and i'm on the other end of now and like that's something i've come out of and it's like in really that that's the way i i i, I kind of understand it through and with myself is like like this thing happened and it absolutely changed the course of my life in a million i doubt i would be pursuing this line of work writing about drug policy for a living if i didn't 
have this experience. Though who knows? I was always just fascinated by science and medicine and pharmaceuticals and like all these things were always kind of preoccupations of mine from the time I, you know, could remember of just being interested in this kind of thing, the brain and science and biology, all that stuff. So who knows? Maybe if I didn't fuck up so bad, I, I would have been a psychiatrist or something. <laughs> or if I could trust myself with around a vault of drugs, I'd have been a pharmacist. Who knows? <laughs> Those that line of work is is just not on the table for me. <laughs> but yeah, like the way I really think about it with myself is that there is like a a real felt acknowledgement that like I went through something. I, I went through something awful that a lot of people I know didn't make it out. And that, that's kind of what, where I'm comparing and contrasting with is like, I made it out of this and yet so many other people didn't. And that that's kind of another fact around this is like, I don't know if it's survivor's guilt or, or some kind of thing of, of, we call it the opioid epidemic and somewhat a misnomer, but it's like, I don't know, like there's some identification with having been through that and being in this kind of, it's declared a public health emergency. Like like the, there's a societal phenomenon, a, a, this dire crisis. And like, it's really that on those levels, I'm relating to it as something like I'm part of. So yeah, I don't know if that really, really gets to it. But it makes intuitive sense to you to say it's something that I moved past. And I, I naturally have some, it makes some sense to me. I named the podcast Flourishing After Addiction. After all, that's almost a little bit provocative. But I recognize that some people, I've met people, whether other folks in recovery or patients who identify with that after, like this is not something I want to diminish, but I would like to think of it as something that I've moved through. And who am I to say that's right or wrong? That makes sense to me. I hear what you're saying. I want to make sure we talk about surgery too, because I was so fascinated by that piece, but I don't want to leave that story hanging. We had only just gotten the treatment. Maybe you can tell us like what worked, what didn't work for you in getting into treatment and the, what what eventually stuck. Yeah, it, it was certainly trial and, and error there for a bit because like I said, the front door was this behavioral health hospital. And so that means there are, there's a psychiatrist, a nurse, a kind of case worker, a social worker, therapist, like that is a, a team of people who are, you know, tasked with assessing me, evaluating me, helping me, treating me. And so I walk in, they're like, this guy needs Suboxone. Like, clear candidate for Suboxone. And I had already taken Suboxone. I knew what it was. It, it was something that we took if there was nothing else that we could find. It was almost like a holdover. It was like, oh shit, I got to go on vacation with my family. Like I need subs. Or it was like, you know, it, it was like really something, it was a stopgap. It was something to take the place of the thing we wanted temporarily. And so like I knew what it was and knew that in the right circumstances, it actually does work like cravings wise and withdrawal wise, like it amazingly clears that up. And so it was in 
treatment where I get on Suboxone and then then this funny thing happens. Like I'm feeling a lot better. And then I see the psychiatrist more and start talking more. And and there's like a, a depression diagnosis, a depression anxiety diagnosis, which that gets citalopram, which is an SSRI. And then for sleep, it's Seroquel. And so immediately it's, and Seroquel is an antipsychotic and it makes people sleepy, makes some people sleepy. So right away, it's like buprenorphine, Suboxone, Citalopram, Seroquel. Like this is the, the cocktail that, that, that I get. And that all occurs over the course of like this five days. And it's like, as that clock is running out on this stint, the question presented to me was like, what are you doing after this? Where are you going from here? And there's a worksheet, not a worksheet, but a sheet. And there's a list of treatment facilities in the area and whatever. And this is where things get really complicated and messy because here they just loaded me up on psych meds. And then they present me with this piece of paper of Hazelden, of Gateway Foundation, of Rosecrans. These are all big name treatment facilities in Illinois, very similarly modeled. And mind you, this is 2010 now, 2011 now or something. And these these dates matter like hugely. And so I'm... I am like, okay, so this is what happens now. You go to rehab after detox. I'm like, okay, I'm learning. I have to go somewhere from here. And also, Zach, you're a young person. You should go to a young person's rehab. And so like, this is the kind of slotting and sorting and things that start happening. And it's like, okay. And, and, and the thing on the list that was like, for young adults, for people my age, was really like Gateway Foundation. And so I leave the detox and elect to opt in for a an outpatient basis, uh, go to Gateway. And still though, I have my prescriptions and I'm due in a month for refills in which I'll see the psychiatrist from the behavioral health hospital and check in and see what happens. And so I get out of the detox and some days go by and it's my first day at Gateway and I'm doing the kind of long intake there. And when it gets time to tell them like, what medicine are you on? And I say Suboxone, things got a little awkward. Mm. (laughs) The intake person was like, how many milligrams? And I say 12. And she shakes her head. <laughs> That's way too high. And proceeds to kind of say, like, we'll talk about this, but this isn't really how we do things here, or something like that. Or just like it was pinned <laughs> like somewhere that like this is the me- the medicine I'm on. And I should say for people who don't know that a normal starting dose is the eight is on the low side, eight to 16 is like a normal starting dose. And 
I would say this is not medical advice, but a lot of <laughs> addiction psychiatrists now consider that there are a lot of people, especially nowadays, who need much higher doses depending on their prior o- opioid tolerance. So yeah. to say 12 is high is, is not high. Yeah, not high. And, and so like that whole interaction, I didn't think of like a lot of it at the time. I didn't put a lot of weight on it. I was just like, okay, like I'm here, I'm presenting myself to the rehab that, and I just did air quotes to the rehab that I'm supposed to be going to. And, and like, at this point, like I would say for someone like there's a a kind of an internal drive here. It's like, I'm taking this medication. I'm taking the advice of this hospital who treated me and stabilized me and is like, you know, you really probably need to go to treatment. And, and I'm like, yeah, like, you know what? Totally. Like I, I should be doing this. Like I, I, I cannot live my life this way. And like, there's a, I could easily gloss over it, but there was something in me that was like, I actually really want to be doing this kind of thing. Like I, I feel so much better just after five days of not hustling for you know some some street opioid and and just the what i really get into in my own head and story a lot is just time is that addiction for me narrowed and enclosed time it cut off the future (laughs) and to be a human being (laughs) and to have be trapped in a horizon of time that is four to six hours makes life very hard to live. And so suddenly I have time back and I can think about the future, think about what I want to do and that I kind of saw and realized through, especially the detox where almost everybody in there was middle-aged. I was like one of the youngest people there by far. And Seeing them in that place was like, oh shit, they have houses that they're going to lose. They have wives that are going to divorce them or husbands that will divorce them. They might lose their family. Like the, the stakes for them, I saw as being just unfathomably higher than my, I took a medical leave from college. <laughs> like, like I was not going to lose my life. And my parents during all this time were like supporting me and being like, let's do this. Right. Like not only were you lucky, you felt lucky, you appreciate it and you actually felt motivated. And then you run up against the brick wall of a treatment center that says you're doing it wrong. Yes. Yes. So, so back to gateway, like this is just remarkable to me. Like I learned that almost everybody there has a case. They, they are court mandated and almost all. And they are as a provision of their supervision or parole or probation or something like they need to be monitored and they need to be living there. Like they can't just leave. If they leave, they will go back to jail. And so I'm exposed to this and I'm like, Whoa, like this is this is a whole different ball game than me. Like I'm electing to show up to this place. <laughs> none of these people, I mean, not none majority like this was 
thrusted upon them as a better option than county jail. And so that first day, I'm just kind of like shadowing. Like I got like hooked up with like a buddy who's like giving me the tour and showing me around and everything he did, I did. If there's like a group or whatever counselor, like I just kind of sat there next to him and just kind of watching everything happening. And I learn about the hot seat and everyone's like, oh, the hot seat. And I'm like, what the fuck is the hot seat? And apparently this is a something deemed therapeutic where throughout the course of one's time at this place, they it would be their day for the hot seat and they would sit there while all their peers hurl criticisms and character assassinations and shout out their defects, character defects at them. And they cannot respond or rebut. They they just have to sit there silently and, and take it all in. And I learn and I hear that. And I'm just like, what the fuck is what? And like just the day progressively gets weirder and I learn more things. And <laughs> so I get home from that day. I'm like, yo, I, I cannot go back there. <laughs> like, I'm not doing this. This is this is nutty. Like. This is totally, I feel it in my bones. Like I do, should not be there. <laughs> and at first it was hard because my parents are like, well, are you sure you really gave it a shot? Is this just kind of you trying to get out of, get out of it? Like, you know, trying, playing devil's advocate. Like, sure, I had lied and manipulated and, and, and had pulled the wool over their eyes before am I doing that now? And, and like, I, thankfully they're like, okay, we're going to listen. We're going to find something else. And so that's when I go to Hazelden in Chicago. And so that, you know, very different vibe. I would say it's, it's in the posh gold coast neighborhood, the building it occupies used to be a Russian consulate. It's like a big mansion, and the Gold Coast neighborhood in Chicago, it's just very, very nice and everyone's very well dressed and et cetera. And so um, I go there and I, once again, I do the intake <laughs> and I say, these are the medications I'm on. And they're like, in order for you to do this program, we need it kind of in paper, in writing, that you will taper off your Suboxone. And that was the condition. And I'm like, well, okay. Like what, like, again, just like, I am being, like you said, like just hitting this, this wall where it's like, here's how I'm doing it. Apparently I, I, I'm, I'm not doing it the right way. And it's made very clear, very explicit. And they're like, here's a psychiatrist in the area. We send a lot of patients to him, patients just like you, like he knows what to do. And so I start seeing him and he kind of gives me like the wink, wink, like, yeah, hold up there, buddy. Like, I'm not taking you off (laughs) Suboxone. (laughs) That's what they want me to do. That's what they think I'm going to do. Wink, wink, like just, this is just you and me here. I don't work for Hazelden. 
And so that was good. <laughs> Very good. And so I went through that program while also living in their sober living residence. So there's like the first floor is all kind of clinical group rooms, therapy rooms, meeting rooms. And then the second, third floor, the residences separated by, by gender. So I started living there while doing the kind of daily, daily thing. And so again, you know, 22, just turning 23 around this point. And, and I, uh, again, have this like very real internal drive and motivation to be doing this. And, and then like things get even more complicated when I'm like, you know what, they're right. I should get off Suboxone and, and I should taper and I don't need to be on this. And, and there's so much social pressure to kind of feel this way and to think this way. And yeah, a, a lot of the, I would say the norms were like, you know, this prolongs the addiction. Like some counselors would say things like, you can't really do the, the deep spiritual work necessary while you're still on an opioid. You know, things like that I, I would hear and I would pick up on it. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's just amazing. It's so interesting. I just had to look it up, actually, that it was 2012, and I'm sure you know this, but it was 2012 that Hazelden announced that they would be providing buprenorphine, Suboxone. So you missed it by like two years. And like, I haven't even gotten there yet. I'm telling this very slowly and, and kind of going through the, the details of it. But so I get off the Suboxone because I'm like, they're right. I should get off. And immediately descend into just depression, anxiety, the, just the bodily discomfort I feel, and I use again. <laughs> and that use, it, it's very slow, it's gradual, I'm going to school, I'm kind of living life, I kind of slowly isolate from friends and the scene I was in, and it was very clear, like if we could plot this all on a chart where it's like time is on the bottom and getting off suboxone is a data point like life just just goes down after after getting off and so that's when the kind of second parental intervention happens 22 and 22 at this point and that's when i get sent off to like the hazelden in minnesota for i'm in there for three months residential and which is intense that's that's a long time and that's a big commitment and and that's what i did and while there i was pleading begging i'm like please prescribe me suboxone i don't understand what's happening like the first month i was there was just a brutal fight that they won like they're like no we are not going to do this and i was sick miserable just feeling awful for the first like six weeks i was there i couldn't even like do the programming and yeah like it's just amazing now because i'm like i was fucking right you pieces of shit 
Yeah, by their own admission. Yeah. Single digit years later, they yes. started providing it. Right. And 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 it is incredible because like in college, like I was studying research methods. I, I was studying psychology. I knew how to read scientific research. Like that's what I was just trained in doing. And I really liked that stuff. And here I'm being conf- here at a nice, pleasant Minnesotan doctor with a beard. And, and he's saying, he's looking at me like painfully. He's like, I know what you want and I can't give it to you. And I'm just saying like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. And I didn't like have the, like the, the, like the statistics in my head, like I do now about the fucking mortality rate that they are thrusting upon me. But that's what got them to change is looking at their outcomes and seeing that people like me were fucking dying right after they got out of their care. And so it's just like going through that, I, you know, if there's anything that like makes me an activist or makes me an advocate or it's this, it's like people need to know (laughs) that like this thing we call opioid addiction is like so imminently treatable with the right medicine and the right kind of clinical care. Like, like I did it that way the first time, the right time and got totally like thrown off that. And it was just, uh, went through like a a nightmare because of this idea that taking this medication is is the wrong way that you are spiritually dead if you take this drug and that the right way is is abstinence and a path of spirituality and prayer and forgiveness like and it's just like why on earth would you separate these things like in what world are we living in where you cannot be on medicine and pray. Like, what? what is this? I mean, it's really powerful because sometimes I wonder just out of a sake of humility or of just checking my own knowledge, is it really as bad as I think it is? Is it really as bad as people say it is, the, the national drug treatment? disaster and over and over again from people in different parts of the country with different backgrounds at different age ranges who went to they say it's always the same set of stories the hot seat the same hot seat the same sort of like shuffling off work responsibilities onto volunteer patients like even just the buddy system it's you're in treatment why why are you being shown around by a fellow patient it doesn't make sense but then this the same sort of narratives about anti-medication stigma or other forms of ideological stigma so it's chilling you know it's 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 all stuff i've heard before but it's chilling because it's so common and it's so consistent it's so shockingly consistent and we both of us know the reason it's because it's cut from the same mold it's literally the same mold over and over again and so this you know i I do want to make sure we have time to talk about your dbs paper 
and maybe we'll weave some of the personal stuff in through, but it, it, it syncs up beautifully with a question I wanted to ask, which you touch on, but I wanted to know more about. So you, you talk about two patients in particular in this four-person deep brain stimulation surgery trial for severe opioid addiction in West Virginia. And you describe how they had had several prior treatment attempts. I was curious about those treatment. Like, did they get good treatment? Did they get stigmatized, like ideologically driven treatment? Like, do you know more about the types of treatment these supposedly intractable cases got? Right. It was hard because I really, when I interviewed them, that's what exactly what I wanted to know was like, tell me about your past treatments. And they, like, I can't make them say something, you know, but it was a case where they weren't saying what I think was actually happening there, but it was more like, this is uh, rural West Virginia, where the options outside of the university environment are very much like what probably something I experienced, which is this kind of rugged way of doing it of, look, the first year, two years, three years, you're going to feel like shit, but you just show up and you go to the meetings and you do the work and yada, 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 the promises. So I, I really do think that their treatment experiences weren't all that great until they started to interact with West Virginia University. And that's where they have something called the COAT program, which is uh, something like the Comprehensive Opioid Addiction Treatment Model or something. And that is where it's much more like the first treatment I got, where there's a psychiatrist and clinicians, and these are people who are credentialed and highly trained, and they are using things like Suboxone. And so what was interesting with these guys, almost to a T, was the opioid addiction pretty much got treated with the Suboxone, but they continued to use or benzodiazepines in pretty chaotic ways that caused a lot of problems. So here they are in the West Virginia University treatment program, and they're somewhat stable, like they're showing up, or they appear somewhat stable, and they go to the, the groups and the meetings, and it's mostly like an outpatient basis. And then like after six months, nine months, they would kind of go off the deep end on these benzos. And they were, from what I gathered and what they were saying, this was not like you know a milligram of Xanax. Like it was ordering these bizarre analogs off the internet not knowing the dose, not knowing anything really about it, and descending in, into just blackouts. And that is a big problem. <laughs> and it, it caused DUIs and wrecked cars. Like it was a big problem for both of them that they were stable on the Suboxone, but then benzos kind of became a thing. So in a way, it's it's very much their addiction was was poly it, it was the opioids and the benzos and kind of that was the mix for them 
And so, yeah, the original question, like their treatment histories, like I think that they were stable on Suboxone and I think also on some antidepressants and other things, but kept up with benzos. Like I think that clinically was deemed like treatment resistant as in like, look, we can, we've kind of got your opioid addiction under control. We kind of got, we got the hang of that, but you're still showing up here and dropping for etezolam, like all these weird things. Like you just got a DUI, like we're giving you the cream of the crop. Like we've, you've got doctors, counselors, like boom, boom, boom. Like you're, you're, you have employment, like everything that we could possibly do for you, we've done was kind of the thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the benzo problem was like, okay, I, I mean, here you are, you just had nine months in our program doing great. And then like it, it, it kept happening with them both. And this is after surgery that they had problems with benzos? No, 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 no. This is, this this is what, what qualified up, them as sorry, treatment yeah, resistant before yeah, the surgery. The, this is what led up into the surgery where they're Got like, it. where they're like, yeah, you keep having this problem almost on a loop where you get better six months, you get better nine months, and then this happens and that like kept happening. And, and I think it was really framed to them as well as like, if you're mixing opioids and these weird benzos, that's just a very bad recipe for, for you for your health, for your life. And so, um, yeah, that, that was really it for them. Opioids and benzos, the, the two that I really got to know and talk to. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, in the piece and I'll link to the piece obviously, and people can read in more detail, but you know, for reasons that'll become clear, there were two in particular that you got to know better. And that's really interesting to me. That's something I'm curious about because, um, in medical school, I did a bit of DBS research, not on addiction, but I've also kept up with it. And you and I have talked on other times that um, you were doing depression, right? Depression, exactly, exactly. And um, you know, you and I have talked at other times that it's really interesting to consider brain surgery as an entirely different modality. That you know, not only maybe, maybe not, we can talk about how much therapeutic promise it has, but also is really instructive in terms of shining a light back on how people think about disorders and what might motivate someone to pursue an extreme treatment like that. I think one of the the funny things about these experimental treatments is that they treat mental disorders as if they're pure and essential in reality the inclusion-exclusion criteria are a little muddy. Now, I'm totally on board with the notion of addiction that treats it as heterogeneous and there's not some sort of important essential division between opioid problems and benzo issues. But it is notable that somebody's benzo problems are really the thing that continually pull them out of treatment. And and, the, and yet, the the thing that they go for is this highly selected treatment for supposedly intractable opioid addiction. Yeah, you're picking up on a lot of the kind of tensions, the kind of contradictions, the kind of, I think, use the kind of muddiness of this whole thing. 
and and like I hoped that by presenting it subtly the way I did that these would just kind of become apparent for people reading I don't know hopefully that was was good yeah like I you know that that's why I loved your book especially because it 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 does present addiction as it just you do muddying of the waters but in the good way where it's like here's addiction as we normally understand it and then what you do i think particularly well is is throw in all these i guess layers that just over t- as i'm reading and reading i'm like this doesn't really add up <laughs> like like they're the model here presenting addiction as a chronic relapsing brain disease yeah, it, it's got some gaping holes in there and things and, and some things about it that people don't really want to see or that conveniently ignore. And I think some of this thinking was for sure happening with the DBS trial, where the rationale for it, the effect of it, it's quite curious that for both of these guys, when I ask them, like, what is the stimulation doing? Like, for you, what do you feel? Both of them, like, almost to a T, are like, I'm not anxious anymore. Thus, I don't need benzos anymore. <laughs> Big, bigly. And then also, like, I'm much more motivated. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's amazing. And, but if only we could see the, those as, outcomes desirable of addiction treatment right Mm -hmm. where it's like if you're treating addiction and your patient's coming back to you being like you know i'm just not anxious anymore i'm super duper motivated those are not being measured in in studies of addiction treatment it's like to, to put this in plain terms their mood is better because of the stimulation in addition to being on Suboxone, having families that love them, having stable employment, and also, I have to think, being part of this trial where you have 20 neuroscientists studying your brain, really rooting for you, giving you like amazing attention. A lot of people don't get that. Mm-hmm. Right. Not to mention, you you also call it the Rolls Royce of addiction treatments. The not just the medication, but the therapy and the levels of support stuff that people don't even necessarily get in an excellent addiction treatment clinic, like a a case manager and social workers and study coordinators who call them and check up on them and make sure that they're engaged. That stuff is is crucial. You know, that's it's not not treatment. And there. The thing that I, I kind of identified most that I didn't even really get really get into with the story, like narratively, maybe it didn't quite fit, or maybe I think it's amazing, but my editors didn't. It was the fucking relationships that these guys had with that team. Like seeing them interact, seeing how they talked about one another, they're like a family. They're so close. I'm close with my therapist, I'm close with my primary care doctor. And like to the extent I have their cell phone numbers and emails, it's like scheduling 
only <laughs> is why I'm communicating. They are like their friends. Like they, there's really a, a, like a, a deep relationship between the researcher and the research, research subject here. And like, I found that to be fascinating to witness. And that was one of the big things I saw when I went to West Virginia. And when I saw the, this whole thing, the whole operation happening, I was like, this is actually pretty in- incredible. Yeah. And just so to say it clearly for people who might yeah. not be as familiar with it, it sounds like, you know, these are folks who are getting brain stimulation surgery for severe addiction and that the brain stimulation is absolutely doing something. It's absolutely has an effect. And you're expressing some doubt as to whether it's the most important factor or at least highlighting that it's immensely important, the level of relationships and connections they all get there. And I think one of the things that's so interesting and confusing about the whole multi-level aspect of all of this is, um, well, just by way of analogy, I had Elias Dakwar on the podcast who does ketamine research, but then also pairs it with things like meditation and mindfulness enhancement therapy, or sorry, motivational enhancement therapy or mindfulness-based relapse prevention. And he gets very good outcome. He gets very good outcomes from that. And it's probably the emergent property of those two things working together. It's not that the ketamine is bullshit and if he had just done the good mindfulness treatment, then everyone would be fine. It's, it's probably, and it's not just that the ketamine by itself would have been fine. It's, it's one plus one is more than two in this case. And so I wonder about that with regard to DBS. It's, it's not that if these people had just gotten excellent psychosocial care, they would have been fine. It's that if we are to do DPS, then we should also do a really excellent job of providing care that's even better than the gold standard of care that we have today and lord knows what what sorts of great outcomes we would have then. yeah there's a tendency to in other words to like try to narrow it down to just one factor which is the most important factor but to me it, I, I wonder if you agree it seems like it's the emergent property of everything working together in concert that really matters right and and the flip side to what you're saying is they could have just gotten dbs they got the surgery they got the implant off you go i don't think that would have worked out very well <laughs> Like it is absolutely the two interlocking and yeah, it's synergy. It is absolutely synergy between the, whatever the stimulation is doing. And by the way, this is being placed in the nucleus accumbens, which we think has a lot to do with things like reward and desire and anticipating rewards and, and motivation and things like that. For some reason, it just reminds me of like, slot machines or something or like the proverbial dopamine hit like they think the nucleus accumbens is like you know kind of on fire for these activities perhaps and so i'm also thinking now about like when one of the the research subjects and i don't like love that word but his name is jared he had the implant going in going for a year straight and he was brought into the hospital and they were going to turn it off, run some scans, do some tests, and then turn it back on. And so it's kind of an amazing little experiment, case study, N of one with him there. And so they turned it off and he immediately said he felt angry, 
agitated, irritated, just pissed off. And thankfully, you know, he's in a monitored setting. Everybody knows what's going on. And then they turn it back on a couple days later. And he's he's flying. Like he can't sleep that night. Like it is energizing, it is stimulating, and and seeing that kind of stark on off of this thing is it's amazing. It's also kind of scary. Like there, there, there's a there's a lot that brings up for me thinking thinking about it where the voltage you're kind of in withdrawal from it and then and then it goes on and you're you know Mach 10 like and then like immediately i mean not immediately but very quickly kind of habituates and stabilizes that was kind of the the kind of thing right it's not like someone is perpetually speedy we should clarify that it's that like he had a rough adjustment coming off rough adjustment coming on and then with the right adjustments yeah yeah evened out so it's just amazing that that this is happening and felt really yeah just lucky to see it all it's fascinating stuff i mean this is also we're still in like version 1.0 of DBS, like this is a single electrode. It's an open loop system in that you just set the setting and then it's stuck there 10, 20, 30 years from now, there'll be closed loop systems where the electrode is also measuring the effects of the stimulation and then adjusting in some sort of loop. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to think about where this all goes. I also wanted to talk about the, the way that these folks understood the treatment and came to the treatment because you you described that the study had been going for about four years and they got four patients. So it's very slow. And that's in accord with um, what I've read. There were some European studies for a while on DBS for alcohol. And some of the European investigators said, this is never going to work because we can't get enough subjects. We're running a trial and just nobody will come get it. And it was really interesting. You described how one of the people there, James Fisher, no no relationship to me, said, every time I'd relapse, my family would be on me like, why don't you get that surgery? And I'd be like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And the only reason the family was on them to say, let's do the surgery is because uh, it's not because they walked by a, a telephone pole and they saw a poster for it. It's because it was major news in West Virginia. And West Virginia was a national news leader because they're doing this surgery. And so can you tell me about like his decision to enroll in like the, the space that DBS for addiction occupies in people's minds there? Yeah, it's a great question because so James Fisher, he was the third participant to get the surgery. And Jared, who I was describing a minute ago, he was the first. And so it's Jared who really kind of takes this leap and has a good outcome. And it gets enormous press. I think two, so there was a like a Washington Post news item just kind of about it. And then right after that, kind of a, a big feature in the Washington Post. And the, those are like the big ones that stood out to me. And that's how I kind of found out about it. And then as I do, I, I go into kind of local news and local West Virginia news and just like a ton, like like syndicated kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. 
And I think in the in the piece, I, I say Jared kind of became like a local a local celebrity in like a really funny, funny way. And so the it was like knowing that he was part of the West Virginia University kind of program and really tied to West Virginia University researchers. Yeah, like all the the patients like James who were going through WVU knew about it and were like aware that it was going on. And and when I asked James that that question that you asked, like, you know, what what was the contemplation kind of like? Like how did you make the decision to do this? And and I think that's around the time when he said like that his family was was nagging him to do it, <laughs> which is which is which is wild. I think it was really his his grandmother, especially. I think she got wind of it. And it was like, you know, seeing Jared have this great recovery success, seeing his story out there, and he's looking healthy, he's looking very good, he's like a tall, good-looking guy. And so, yeah, I think it was James Fisher's grandmother who was telling James he should he should get it. And it was while James was in residential treatment for maybe like the umpteenth time or something like he had just gone and gone and gone and he had just come off a really major relapse with the benzos and you know just being in that kind of dejected place where like i just pressed the self-destruct button on my life again like it just everything exploded again and so i think that being in that place and having family, you know, really wanting him to do something about it. And then being in the West Virginia University treatment setting, like all those things kind of aligned where it was he who was like, like, is that surgery even an option? Like, can this, like, it was he who, I think I have the right, like raised it with his, own counselors and team and since they're all at wvu and know each other went up kind of went up the the flagpole or went up the chain and at first though james was saying like it felt like that was out of reach it felt like it it he wasn't deserving of it that it like that it wasn't for him in some way i thought that was interesting too where it's like he saw Jared, he saw that it worked for Jared and seeing all that felt like that can't be me. Like, I, I don't think I can do that. And then the researchers and the research director, James Mahoney, it, it's kind of he who I think handles like the, not he himself, but there's a very long consent process where they met with James numerous times until kind of selecting him and then he also selecting them you know there's kind of this courtship that goes on for for I think weeks at a time and so it's really like how could it not be such an intimate <laughs> process and kind of yeah cause this deep relationship 
Yeah, it makes sense that it would be a really cautious process and a deep process. And that's the only way it's available now. But again, I wonder, you know, if there were to be a sea change in the way we thought about addiction or the acceptability of this type of brain surgical treatment, could there be a shift? I mean, there was a time where ketamine for major depression or ketamine for addiction was considered fringe. It was for a very tightly controlled patient population only to be administered under very careful circumstances. Those days are gone. They're long gone. And there's other stuff going on there too. Of course, there's the whole psychedelic revolution and the different forces of commercialization and popularization. But uh, this is just to say, it's not inconceivable that at some point in the future, it would be considered reasonable, if not routine, to get brain surgery for addiction treatment. And WVU, that, that research team, they're well on their way. So where they're at now is interesting. They're moving to phase two, which is 16 people. And very, I think they're recruiting now as we speak. Okay. Maybe. And so they're, so the, that phase one, the four people, I was really not going to empirically show that DBS is effective. It was like, is this safe? Is this tolerable? Can this can this even work with with this group? And now they're doing sixteen, and so I think, yeah, it's they're well on their way to building the reality that materializing what what you just said. Though I, I do think, unlike ketamine and some of the other things, like DBS has the highly invasive aspect to it. You know, like I think that is one thing that will keep it probably from becoming like a boutique thing that rich people do or something with like ketamine and these other things. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's more like uh, there's like a transcranial magnetic stimulation kind of cottage industry boutique type of care model where. You know, you go in, you put on the helmet, and so TCMS is what it's called, I think. And, you know, that is not deep brain. It's getting the, you know, the cortex, like the outside of of the brain. And again, they're also studying that and, you know, much less invasive. So maybe that's where things go. Like, I don't know. Like, I I just think the, the invasive hurdle seems very large to surmount. And not only is it invasive, it also is in control of the investigators. So you don't get to play with your own remote. They're the ones that set the voltage. And if you want a higher voltage because you think it might make you more happy, you don't get to make that choice in DBS. Mm -hmm. That's another funny dimension, which you also touch on in your piece. There's so much there. It's so rich and it's a, it's a nice, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good long piece it covers a lot of different dimensions. It's a it's a cool sort of prism reflecting a lot of different aspects of addiction treatment. So I can't can't recommend it highly enough. I really enjoyed the piece. I'm glad we got to talk about it. We're running out of time here, Zach, but I wanted to make sure I got to a few popcorn questions here. Please. You've written a few times about media, movies and TV in particular. What's the best movie about addiction for you? Oh man. I've got like a, a very pretentious answer and I'll I'll just go with that. Okay. Great. 
There is a movie by the director James Jaramouche called Only Lovers Left Alive. Mm. And this is about kind of existentially pained vampires who've been <laughs> alive for centuries. And one of them is living in Detroit. And he kind of has this like cult status in this day and age, in like, you know, the 2010s or something, as a reclusive rock star. And he's been alive for so long, and yet he's kind of chasing like fame and celebrity still, and is just so depressed. The reason he could live so long as a vampire and not get found out and have a, you know, one stake driven through his heart is because he has a safe supply to blood. Hmm. He has relationships with doctors at hospitals and blood banks who he pays for blood in this kind of underground way. And it's like a network. Every city they're in, wherever they go, they have like a blood connection to get blood. And then also in the movie over time, he's lamenting how everybody's blood nowadays is contaminated. Our, we're we're unhealthy. We've got the microplastics. We eat like shit. Our blood isn't good anymore. And I just think this whole film about this guy, you know, he has a safe supply to blood. There's a lot of funny metaphors going on there. He's been alive for so long and he's so unfulfilled and he's chasing something. And anyway, it, I highly recommend it as a read it as a just a metaphor for addiction. And suddenly a lot of funny things start to happen in that movie. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Only lovers left alive. I love it. I love, I love vampire stuff. So that's a, a easy slam dunk. It's, it's, it's October, you know, it's a good time to, good time <laughs> to check that out. You mentioned at the outset, you, you had a lot of anxiety. You had a lot of self-criticism. Opioids helped you with that. It's been a long time since then. It's been almost 10 years, I think. The, the, how is that for you now? How are you working on that? Yeah, it's like I said, I, I do therapy once a week. Sometimes I've gone twice a week. And I think I've just learned so much about how to present myself with with different stories. And and I think I'm I'm a writer, and so I don't know if everyone else lives like this, but I'm just constantly narrating, like constantly narrating, describing, observing, and almost like writing to myself sometimes. And and that's just kind of a lot of what I do. And and I think through through therapy and also frankly, just like kind of loving the life that I've tried to create and build like i feel like i've had a lot of agency and control and effect on my life that i'm living and so i think having this having all these things going for me where you know i can really do the kind of work that i i love and i can do it alongside incredible people and do interviews like this with you like your book is amazing i like read it in like two days and just to be having like a conversation like this and and i'm not nervous and i'm don't really i'm not freaking out and neurotic this whole time about oh how are these listeners going to think of me it, it's just like i've just come to 
to grow into myself and to to feel myself and to acknowledge that you know i've you know really built and created something that works for me and it it took a long time and it took you know i i hope everyone doesn't have to go through a heroin addiction to get to the point <laughs> that i did but i also think like i almost wouldn't have this if it weren't for that and so in in this weird way there's just like a kind of yin and yang to to this experience and that i cannot kind of reap the the fruits of my labor and experience this joy and this just endless curiosity and interest like i can't have all that unless i've also felt like not only the absence of that but like just yeah brutal pain like i, I think to to feel that ad- adversity and to just kind of know that uh like i think they're back to the very beginning it's like i think i've really just come out of something and and being on the other end of all that it's just wild to that this is what it looks like that's lovely it's inspiring and you, you've written and also maya's falovitz has profiled you in a piece about the role of writing in your recovery. And I didn't even have to ask you about it. It's just apparent in the way you talk about it, the meaning of writing and finding meaning and purpose in your work. It's very inspiring. It's a lovely story. Zach, we're at time. I want to thank you for exactly that, for your always fascinating, wide-ranging, interesting writing. Whenever I see your byline, I always jump to read it the range of topics you cover and the rigor and the fairness you bring to it. Uh, it's a breath of fresh air and overall troubled sector of journalism and writing. So you're really doing good work. We're, we got to stop in a second, but do you have any parting words or any any final thoughts or maybe a request to the audience? I don't know who's out there listening, frankly. Yeah, like when I think of, you know, you mentioned Maya Solovitz, like I think of her, I think of you. I think of of so many people who have had some some addiction, some compulsion, some something that almost very close to ruining our lives. Who knows what that looks like for everybody, but there is something to say about being able to to kind of channel that or to find an outlet for it. Like I I think you're the psychiatrist, but I think there is some obsessive, compulsive aspects to addiction. <laughs> and and I, I've just found a way for mine to work for me. And like I can read the same sentence a thousand times and not get tired of it. So that's something. But I do think like what I found, like I think anyone can find that. So like I think it's out there for you, listener or whoever. Yeah, you can find your thing and you can make if your default settings are a little wonky, like you can find something that makes it work. <laughs> That's what <Yeah>. I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my interview with Zach Siegel. I hope you enjoyed it. I loved hearing Zach talk about his understanding of recovery, including why he himself doesn't identify with that label. Like I mentioned, In one of my very first conversations on this podcast, I spoke to the fantastic researcher Katie Witkowitz. I'll link to it in the show notes. 
She's written a great deal on the notion of recovery, how to understand recovery, and herself is a proponent of this notion of partial recovery. Zach's story illustrates one of the wrinkles with that issue, I think, that culturally we don't have much of a basis to make sense of it, certainly outside of recovery communities. So what does that pronouncement do socially if you say, I'm in recovery and then are still drinking? It doesn't quite make sense in our in our folk psychology common understanding yet. We also have talked many times about the many pathways to recovery on this podcast. It's something that's very important to me to understand and to investigate and to share information about. One that I think is gets a certain amount of stigma in certain circles and maybe is, is often perceived as incomplete is, is a medical path. And Zach is another really great example of someone who has, in my view, not to psychoanalyze him, who has primarily leaned on medical recovery supports on psychotherapy and medication treatment. And that is a pathway to recovery. And that's, that's what the research shows by folks like John Kelly, another person interviewed on this podcast. And then of course, with DBS, there's so much there. I really encourage you to read Zach's story, the notion of different institutions and the tension between community care versus university-based treatment centers. And then this notion that even when you get the so-called Rolls-Royce of addiction treatment, it's not a panacea. People still have trouble even when they're receiving the absolute best standard of care. I also saw that in physician health programs and otherwise. Not to mention other factors Zach brought up, like the complicated relationships between benzodiazepines, other drugs, and opioids. There's really much, much more. I encourage you, if you've any, even a passing interest in this topic, to read his, his wonderful article. You can find links to that and to much more information over at the show notes at carlericfisher.com. And again, the big announcement for today is the paperback version of my book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, is coming out on January 17th. So please do consider getting a copy, sharing it with your friends, choosing it for a book club. Really, whatever comes to mind, I'd be grateful for your help. It really does matter for a first-time writer like me who has written what is essentially considered a niche book. I, I see how so many of you have helped me immensely already in sharing and getting the word out. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I would like to think you're doing that because you agree with some of the messages of the book. And as some of you know, I've worked on this book for years and years of my life. And even though I try to be even-handed and not too polemical, I do believe very strongly in the core messages of the book, the need for many pathways to recovery, the need to take addiction seriously with nuance, avoiding sound bites, the need to find synthesis and ways of connecting with one another in the medical and recovery spaces, not playing into the usual polarized debates, and at bottom, the need for compassion and hope. So once again, please keep my book in mind. Consider pre-ordering it. As of now, it is on some online retailers you can pre-order. And a great way to do that is to head over to my webpage where you can find a handy list of tons of online retailers. All of that is at carlericfisher.com, where you can also sign up for my email list. You'll immediately get a free guide I made about the many pathways to recovery. And you'll also stay up to date with all the latest episodes, show notes, and other writings. Thanks so much for listening, and talk to you again soon. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It isn't medical or clinical advice. The content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. For now, it's just me bringing these conversations to you ad-free for their own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my work and positions on my website, which I will keep updated. <laughs> 